COVID issue for all women. Hello, Hannah here to say a hearty welcome to this week's Sunday Chops, which you may be listening to on your phone. I'm not a person that spends that much time on my phone, and yet my life basically ground to a halt when it was stolen. So I jumped at the chance to talk to Dr. Faye Baghetti, neuroscientist and social media's phone doctor, whose new book, The Phone Fix, looks at our relationship with our phones, whether blue light effects are overrated and whether we should all stop being young people nowadays about it. Facebook, by the way, is out on February the 1st. Until next time. Faye, I wonder if I could start by asking you, why is it so many conversations about mobile phones are really, really negative? Particularly when we talk about young people and mobile phones. I mean, I know enough teenagers to know they are always on their phone. But there's a kind of cynical way in which people talk about it, in which they assume that they're doing something that's pointless. Whereas, you know, they could be buying their mum a Christmas present, they could be reading something in the news, they could be checking train timetables. There are all sorts of wholesome things, but we always seem to think the worst. Why do you think we are so negative about phones? Thanks, Hannah. That is a really, really good question. It's tricky to say exactly why, but there's certainly a bit of a recurring pattern in that every generation. I mean, I certainly got that back in my era. I got a smartphone, I think, at around the age of 20. But before that, I would get a lot of slack for watching too much TV, playing too many games. At some point, I was told off for reading too many fiction books rather than non-fiction books. I think when it comes to the brain, we certainly have a lot of fear of sort of novelty and new things. For example, you wouldn't approach an animal or an insect that you don't recognise. You wouldn't pick up a plant that you don't recognise and eat. You'd be naturally cautious of a food that you don't recognise. People are generally suspicious of people they do not know. And I think technology in particular falls in right into that space so we have a natural suspicion about it and at the same time in terms of societal factors we are conditioned to believe that being as productive as possible is best and we sort of ignore a lot of the entertain we tend to dismiss a lot of what we people may find entertaining sort of you know chatting with friends playing games we are quick to think that those things are pointless Because actually, you're right. If teenagers are on a bus on the phone, you know, just talking to their mates, were they all on the same bus talking? I'm sure people would find things to moan about about that, wouldn't they? They'd be like, oh, God, these kids on the bus, they were really round. We often talk about how people are addicted to their phones. I spent a lot of time around a lot of alcoholics. I I don't know if addicted is the word that I would choose in in that sense. I think there, there is a difference in those words. But Is that also an overstatement? Because it is a really common statement now. So we are not addicted to our phones, at least not in the medical sense of the word. Whether the word takes on a different meaning when used colloquially and people say, oh, I'm addicted to chocolate, I'm addicted to the latest Netflix binge-worthy series, that's got to do with sort of the way that we use language. But certainly from my point of view as a practising doctor, addiction is a very serious and severe condition. I think sometimes people fail to understand the severity of addictions and how functionally impairing it is. People addicted to substances, it will destroy their life. They lose their livelihoods, they lose relationships, they lose their health. And especially when thinking about substances, the addictive substances that we generally think about when we consider addiction, they 
are so powerful that they rewire the brain to such an extent that all that a person can think of is the substance. And it's certainly been the case for me that I've been treating people with addictions in hospital, some of them waiting open heart surgery, because it's the case that if you inject yourself with addictive drugs, you can get bacterial infections that specifically settle in the valves of the heart. And it's certainly been the case that people will be waiting for open heart surgery, but they will not be able to help themselves. Their drug-seeking drive is so high that they will try obtain drugs and use them in the hospital bathroom whilst waiting for that open heart surgery. I mean, I see addiction in a very different way. I see in terms of a medical illness that needs to be treated. There's diagnostic criteria. Phone addiction does not fulfill that criteria. And it's not in any of our classification systems. Mm. So I wouldn't be able to diagnose you or anybody listening to this podcast with a phone addiction because it doesn't exist. And last time this was debated, when they tried to put it into a classification manual, again, there isn't sufficient evidence to show that people suffer enough harm from their phones for it to constitute an addiction. And the other thing we need to think about is that we say the word phone addiction, but what does it actually mean? I mean, I may use my phone, but I wouldn't necessarily want to check your phone. And within the phones, we have a range of exactly, right? Whereas, for example, when I was in, in the gastrointestinal ward, when I was the doctor there, there was many people with liver failure due to alcohol. And they would want to, they were so addicted to alcohol, they would find any substitution for alcohol that we would have to remove the alcohol gel from next to their bedside, which we used to just clean our hands before we we examine patients, because they would be at risk Mm. of ingesting that as a substitute to alcohol. But yeah, I wouldn't necessarily grab your phone, Hannah, instead of using my own. And then within our phones, we all do different things. Some people might like playing games. Some people will check social media. Another person might message their friends. Another person might check their emails. So it's a very muddy word, this phone addiction. It's not very clear what it means, but it is sort of banded around a little yeah. bit. But certainly certainly, it is not the case from, from the medical point of view. Now, you talk then about rewiring the brain and... I have a strange stick now that I can't get rid of. So mobile phones have rewired my brain to some extent. And that is, if I see a photograph in a book or, you know, a hard copy photograph and it's difficult to make out, I instinctively do the sort of open pinch movement to zoom in on it and I can't stop doing it. So in some way, my brain has gone, that's how you make things bigger. That's the gesture. And I unconsciously do it. It must be doing something to my brain using a mobile phone. Absolutely. So I think I want to step back and take it away from phones. But everything we do changes our brain. Everything we do has the potential to rewire our brain, not as powerfully as drugs, but it it does. And I think one of the things that is important to talk about is that we have two different systems within our brains. So there's a system that's found behind our forehead and it's called the prefrontal cortex. And I call that the executive brain. That's the boss of all the brain regions. What it does, that's where we make our complex decisions. We do our in-depth thinking. This is where we do our long-term planning. And this is where we do a lot of our deliberate actions. But that area only has a sort of finite capacity and capability. So it relies on another brain region, and that brain region is the basal ganglia. It's found deeper inside the brain. It's actually a set of nuclei, a set of structures. And that's more like the autopilot part of the brain. So the executive will rely on the autopilot to do a lot of our daily actions. 
And that involves everything from sort of getting dressed to brushing our teeth to washing our hands, all these automatic movements that we make. I think if you've ever seen somebody, I don't know, wash the dishes, they will put the same amount of washing up liquid on the sponge. Some people will put too much, some people will put too little. These are not conscious decisions, but they're sort of automatic processes that we have stored to make life easier. Because if you had to deliberate about every single action you make, you would become very quickly mentally fatigued. But the thing is with these autopilot actions is that they can sometimes, especially when you're fatigued, be executed in the wrong settings. And for me, I noticed that a lot because I drive to work in all sorts of times of the day and night in the hospital. And sometimes I find that on a day off, I'll start instantly yeah. navigating towards work. And I think loads of people listening to this will be able to, to relate. To that. And that's the kind of habit uh, fail that you're sort of having with trying to pinch. And you'll find that you're more likely to do that at times of mental. From my point of view, the other time I, I do that is because I, I drive two different cars. One is a big car to transport my kids and another yeah. one's slightly smaller car. And the indicators and the windscreen wipers are in completely different sides. And I will, if I'm mentally fatigued, the one that more strongly encoded, the car that I drive the most, are more likely yeah. to press that, you know, I'm trying to do the windscreen wipes and I indicate accidentally. And that's a bit of a habit, again, a, 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 a more of a habit, not quite a fail, but it's sort of the wrong application. That habit is correct, but it's been applied wrongly in mm. that particular setting. The thing that I want people to take away from that is that it's nothing to be worried about. It's not toxic. It's not doing you any harm. You catch yourself and I'm sure you, you do something different. Our mental health is, I mean, mental health in general, huge conversation which is good but I think we tend to look at things in terms of good for our mental health and bad for our mental health and you know it's complicated there are arguments to say that social media is really bad for your mental health that could just be once you have one bad day because of something on social media it could be you know that it is really oppressively awful for you it's difficult with phones because phones and social media are so closely linked but how do you think our mental health is affected by the amount of phone use that we have? Yeah, that is, again, a quite a tricky but very, very interesting question. I agree with you when you said that it's complicated. I think, again, I'd like to go back to the brain and kind of tell listeners about how the brain works, because that really helps put things in context. So we have two regions in our brain, and they're called the amygdala, and they're sort of two almond-shaped structures that get activated when we experience strong emotions. And they're actually much more likely to be activated by negative emotions rather than positive emotions. And that is a survival thing. Because, you know, if if you're driving down the same road 1,000 times, what you want to do is you want to remember that near miss to prevent it happening again. They're not as activated, but all the times you've driven well, you'll remember that one time Mm -hmm. you drove badly. That is good for our survival. Not necessarily good for our well-being, but good for our survival. And then the executive that we talked about earlier, the boss of all brain regions, when the amygdala gets activated, it tries to rationalize that process. So sometimes you'll feel a strong emotion, but you'll rationalize it. You'll use input from previous experiences, from your memory structures and put it in context. Okay, it wasn't that bad. You know, no one got hurt. I'll be more careful next time. So what I want people to understand is that our brain on the inside is as different in the way it functions as is our physical appearance. When you see so many people, we all have facial features. It's the same for our brain. 
And people's amygdala will function differently. There'll be some people whose amygdala are slightly more reactive, more hyperreactive, more likely to respond to these negative emotions. And that is a genetic thing. And what you find is that they may be more predisposed to mood disorders, depression, anxiety, things like that. You'll see that it runs in families. Okay. So we have the genetic component, but then we have environmental factors. Because you might have a genetic predisposition, but whether or not that comes to fruition depends on your environmental setting. And of course, the virtual world and phones are a key part for that, but they're actually a much smaller part than is made out to believe. Our physical world actually has a much bigger impact on our mental health than the virtual world. And these things are you know, your your situation, your housing, whether you're living in, in poverty, your relationships, you know, with other people, whether you have a support network, whether you're being bullied, whether you're being discriminated, whether you've gone through some trauma that's made your brain on sort of your amygdala on high alert. So these are the big factors. And certainly the virtual world plays a role. But it's not as big a role as is been made to believe, we've been thought to believe. There was a 2019 study that looked at about, I think, about 355,000 adolescents and their time with interacting with digital technology and various different types of technologies, from TV to social media to everything. And they found that about 0.4% of their well-being was actually linked to this digital technology. So, of course, it has a role, but it's a much smaller role. And I think where people get really stuck is that they see somebody who is depressed, who is anxious, and they will spend more time on their phone. But I think what we need to understand, there's a cause and an effect. And a lot of that time, phone use from that person is a symptom of their underlying mood disorder rather than the cause. They've started to withdraw, just like someone who is depressed may spend more time in bed. It's not their bed or their bed was too comfy that caused the depression. They'll spend more time in bed, more time at home, more time being withdrawn, just like someone else will spend more time, you know, browsing online, looking at social media. Now, that's not to say that, you know, that's not to say that you know social media never has any effect because actually at times where our brain is very fatigued and very low we tend to do the wrong things Mm -hmm. even if somebody is depressed going out seeing friends getting some natural sunlight is likely to help their mood but in that state they find it hard to do what helps them and they will stay at home they will you know stay in bed or someone else may browse their phone so I look at all those interlinking factors and I have no judgment uh, behind it. And But the other thing I want to mention is that we need to be aware that, you know, a lot of it depends on the content that we look at. We can brand social media as a whole, um, and then we'll find, for example, that, you know, only 0.4% of somebody's well-being uh, will be related to social media. But actually, a lot of that, is based on what content you see. And there's certainly harmful and beneficial content, even within social media. And it will affect people differently. So there was a, there was another study where they, they took about 300-odd adolescents and they monitored them for three weeks on social media. And what they found is that 45%, so nearly half, had no effects from social media. And that makes sense. 
28% have negative effects and 26% have only positive effects. And of course, that looks like if you group them all together, that cancels out and it looks like there was no effect. Yeah, because the positive and the negative cancels each other out. But that's that's exactly what motivated me in a way to write my book. Because I think people need to look at their use of technology and their use of social media or various other things on an individual level and think what is helping me and what is not so beneficial for me. There are no hard and fast rules, and I think that there's a lot of introspection involved. My personal hard and fast rules from the literature is that. Viewing content that involves self-harm is definitely negative and being cyberbullied is definitely negative. And I think if any of the listeners are experiencing this or actually viewing that sort of content, they should reach out and get some help. All right, Mickey here with an advert for BetterHelp Therapy Online. You all right? Such a small question and sometimes such a big question too, eh? Now, regular listeners will know I am no stranger to depression and while over time and with the help of some decent counselling and brilliant friends and family, I've established a toolkit to help when the constantly dripping tap of life gets a bit too much. That does not mean I am a stress-free human rainbow skipping through meadows. I mean, who is? We all carry around different stresses, big and small, and sometimes we can deal and sometimes it's much harder to cope. Life, in it? Right now, I have a teenage puppy to deal with, and although I love her very, very much, she can be a lot. There, said it. And as quick a fix as it seems to say, I'm fine, I'm fine, and push it all down into the big inside box and put that lid on. For me, that hasn't been a great long-term solution, in that if I don't get it off my chest, it will at some point come bubbling up, and it's never been one to pick its moments in a good way. I find talking means I can avoid it exploding out of me like a messy emotional volcano all over my nana's carpet. Also, during my various times in talk therapy, I discovered that saying something out loud or writing it down can make it seem much more manageable than allowing it to swirl around and grow ever bigger in my head. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. I've found knowing how to reach out is sometimes the toughest bit, but BetterHelp is entirely online. Boom. Which means it couldn't be easier. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist, then work your sessions around your schedule. With more than a thousand therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Standard issue listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash standard. That's betterhelp.com slash standard. Can we talk about blue light? About 15 years ago, I had a job at a local newspaper and they paid for us to get our eyes tested because we used computers a lot. And I'd gone for an eye test and the optician said to me, is there a reason why you're here? And I said, well, I use a computer all the time. And he said, no, but have you got any particular worries about your eyes? And I was like, no, I just use a computer all the time. And he said, to be honest, a lot of that is really overstated. And I I was like, what? It was almost like someone had said to me that smoking wasn't bad for you or something. It was such a shock to me that I'd constantly been told the screens rot your eyes. So with that in mind, I want to ask you, is a lot of the conversation about blue light overstated as well? Yes, absolutely. It really, really is. So th- there's a lot of 
conversation about blue light affecting our sleep. And I think a lot of it came to light, or at least under public and popular opinion. Yeah. Again, it has to do with our natural skepticism of technology. But there was a study in 2015 that basically gave people either a book to read before bedtime or an e-reader, a light emitting, a blue light emitting e-reader for five days. And they found that they those who read the e-reader fell asleep later. And that story hit the headlines and it's widely reported even now as proof that blue light affects our sleep. Now, what people do not know about the study, firstly, it involved only 12 people. These studies tend to be small, but they don't know how small the difference was. So the people using the e-reader fell asleep 10 minutes later. Right. Their total sleep time was unchanged. Their sleep efficiency was unchanged. And to get that tiny 10-minute difference, which as a doctor, seeing somebody in my clinical practice, 10 minutes difference for your sleep is neither here nor there, is something that's statistically significant, that statisticians will get excited about. Yes, there's a difference between groups, but it's not clinically significant to a doctor. But to get that tiny difference, they tested participants in laboratory conditions. They had a strict wake and sleep schedule. And the most important thing of all, they had to be in a dim room for four hours beforehand. So to get that tiny blue light effect on your sleep, you have to be in a dim room for four hours beforehand. They've tried to replicate this study, other scientists, using an iPad in people's own homes and putting even, you know, electrodes on their head to measure sleep efficiency. And when the study is done in participants' own homes, because we expose ourselves to so much artificial light, there is absolutely no difference from the blue light in our screens. Wow. I think it's important to say that our brain does detect light. And if in bright lit conditions, we are likely to fall asleep later. They can see that even in, um, there was a really nice study that I loved where they, they looked at two hunter-gatherer tribes in Argentina and one had access to electricity and the other one didn't. And the one that had access to electricity, they fell asleep about 45 to 55 minutes later than the one who didn't have access to electricity. And that is where the problem is, is that we have busy lives, we want to squeeze the most out of our day and we have a lot of artificial light. But if you are in normally lit conditions in your home, then checking your phone before bed, the blue light in that has minimal effect. But it is important to say that in those studies, they, they made participants look at the same content, whether it was a book, you know, it was the equivalent book on an iPad. There are some content is more psychologically stimulating than others. Yeah, of the news, I would imagine. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, I mean, when we're stressed, we release a hormone called cortisol, and that's our alertness hormones. And it makes sense. And when you're stressed, you need to be more alert. It's your brain's mechanisms of evading danger. You you don't you don't want to be sleeping when there's danger around. And if you are reading sort of like newspaper headlines with you know natural disasters and really terrible things happening, or argumentative comments on social media, then that is likely to impact your sleep. But if you're playing a simple game um, or reading a book, and again, not a psychologically stimulating book, because you can also stay up all night reading a a really scary book as well, then I think that is fine to use your phone in those uh, situations close to bedtime. I discovered recently how many people I know turn their phones off at night. And I never turn my phone off because I've had a number of phone calls 
during the night that I've been glad that I was able to answer. So I just generally, as a rule, don't don't turn my phone off. So I think we all do have our individual habits, don't we? We have certain people I know will like turn it off at 11. They won't touch it afterwards. They put it into a sleep mode. So I suppose it depends how you feel you are with your phone. Because you had a list of questions in your book. And my answer to all of them was no. Apart from the one that says, do you reach for your phone first thing in the morning? To which my answer was yes. But that's because it is also my alarm clock. That said, I will look at the news while I'm still in bed. But I used to get my laptop out and look at the news when I woke up. Or I used to turn my television on back in the day and watch the news. So I don't think that's something that phones have caused. I think that's just who I am as a as a human being. When I wake up in the morning, I want to know what's going on in the world. I completely support your approach, Hannah. I think when it comes to phone use, I definitely, in my book, I don't have a sort of one-size-fits-all. I think people should be able and free to make their own decisions, their informed decisions of what they they would like to do. And what's beneficial for one person might well be detrimental for another person, Mm. vice versa. So that is a really, really good example of something that you find helpful that other people may not. And I certainly am not adverse to that approach. So I think that is a helpful way of looking at your own individual habits, seeing which ones are beneficial, which ones are neutral, and which ones are negative, and just trying to change any that you feel are negative. And if you don't feel they're negative and there's no sort of harm coming to you, then I think it's fine to keep things as they are. Talking of your relationship with your phone, I had my phone stolen recently. You know this already and our listeners will will know this because it was a massive drama in my life. It was huge. And I think over the years, I first got a phone because... My car broke down. I had to walk miles to ring someone to come and get me. And I'm, and that was like the year 2000. And I thought, sod it, I'm going to get a phone. I don't want this to happen again. And then as technology has crept along, my phone has become obviously so much more than my phone. It's kind of become loads of other pieces of equipment sort of centralised for me. And I didn't realise that was happening until I didn't have it. And then I realised I don't have an alarm clock anymore. I didn't know what the time was because I don't wear a watch. I don't have a landline anymore. So I was pretty much incommunicado, which was quite stressful. I don't have a sat-nav anymore. I don't take a physical copy of my rail ticket, which was a real pain in the neck. I didn't have a physical copy of my rail pass. I had no money on me. Quite often I did have a wallet with me, but quite often on other occasions I wouldn't even have had a bank card with me. I've allowed it to become this sort of one-stop shop for my life. And when it was taken away from me, it was awful. It really was awful. So I kind of wonder what you think about the wisdom of centralising your life in this in this one place. I mean, obviously, the issue necessarily in that case is not the phone itself, but the crime that was committed by stealing yeah, your yeah, phone. Yeah. But yeah, so I think the fact that we even worry about this shows that the natural unease that we feel towards technology. It's very common for humans to try and make their life easier. If a tool can have one function, why can it not have more? And in an almost backwards story to you, to yours, I, I had a paper rail ticket that I actually fell out of my pocket and I had to retrace my steps. And thankfully I found it. But it would have been so much easier if it was on my phone. So in a yeah. way, instead of having multiple objects that we lose that would each individually have a low impact, we have one object that if lost or stolen could have a really large impact. I personally, I'm not so uneasy about it because in a way that the tools of my job 
are such that, for example, I use the same type of equipment to look at the back of people's eyes that I do to look in people's ears, and or at least the same base, but with a different attachment. And if that was to fail, I wouldn't be able to do either. But if I had them distinct, then one would fail individually versus yeah. the other. So I, I, would, I would still have the, the same issue. And for me, I, I, found, I find phones to be such amazing tools. Like I'll be down in the emergency department seeing somebody and um, – if I want to know if their nerve at the back of their eye, their optic nerve is inflamed, something called optic neuritis, I can bring up some Ishihara plates. These are little um, dots that have numbers on uh, where you have to read out the numbers and it checks color vision. I can just do that through my phone, just a quick yeah. screen before they see an ophthalmologist. Or if there's a drug dose that I can't quite look up, we have a BNF in, in medicine, a really thick book. I don't carry that around with me anymore. I just look it up on my phone. And in a way, I, I sort of, I, I love the ease of it. But obviously, if something was to go wrong, then you have a much bigger impact than you would otherwise. Tell me about your phone use then. Yeah, so it's, it's interesting. I'm very mindful of my digital habits. And I think I have to be to make room for, for what I'm doing in my life. Because I have two young kids. I, I work in a hospital. And then I'm also doing social media. And I've written a book. My biggest thing that I do and I'd like people to know is I've built up a a fairly large social media community but I've done that without any adverse impact on my mental health and keeping very good digital habits and one of my best habits is that I check social media for as long as I want but I only do that twice per day they like brushing your teeth you do that twice a day you slot it into two slots there's no specific time for them I just think when is a good time to check social media I'll check it now. And then if I think of something that I want to do, okay, then I'll have to wait for my next check. Each time I check it, I log in. Um, I check for as long as I want. There's no time restriction. I, I I don't feel like I need to spend 10, 15 minutes. Sometimes it might be two minutes. Sometimes it may be longer until I feel like I've done what I need to do. And then I log back out. So in a way, what I do is I tend to have sort of distinct scenarios that I sort of have social media within my life. Because I do find that constant connectivity stressful, whereas other people may not. But that's one of my tips in terms of people using their phone well. Whether that's emails or news, you know, anything that affects you is worth just having a finite number of checks that you do per day. And that's likely to be much less disruptive, even if you spend the exact same amount of time. Let's just say you spend half an hour having two 15-minute checks. It's much less disruptive to your to your attention than having 30 one-minute checks. And it yeah. also makes you feel a little bit less frazzled. You would think instinctively under underneath it all, all social media was all the same. But it's, but it's, it's actually not, is it? Your instinct about the different social media platforms is correct. And different ones, again, we lump everything into phone addiction, even though we've got multiple apps. We lump everything into uh, social media even though there's multiple apps with there definitely needs to be a tailored approach even when it comes to scientific studies that is very difficult with the way the field moves but certainly your instinct that different social media platforms have a different effect is correct because research for example shows that in terms of body image visual based platforms such as instagram have more of an effect than twitter which is more about spreading the news or other social media platforms where you catch up with friends such as you know facebook So that's certainly been shown to be the case. I think ultimately, despite the way things are changing, there are two things that people need to think about when it comes to their social media, the content they see and the habits that they develop. So the content that they see 
apart from the cyberbullying and the self-harm that we talked about, in a way has to be individualized for what is beneficial or useful to that person versus what is harmful. Somebody might be following uh, a lot of motherhood content on Instagram and they might be finding it that very helpful or someone else might be comparing themselves adversely in a way that makes them feel low about their mood. So there's the content that's individualized. And the other thing is the digital habits that we form around the content, whether view the best content in the world, but if you are checking social media every sort of 10 minutes, so much so that you're not able to concentrate or fully engaged in in other factors in your life, and that is becoming a problem. And the other way, you can have the best habits. You can check social media twice a day, like I do, by viewing really bad content on it. So I think it needs to be a combination of those two factors. So where can people follow you? My main platform is possibly Instagram, and it's their underscore brain underscore doctor, their brain doctor. On Twitter, I'm their underscore brain doctor. And then I'm also on threads and LinkedIn. If you just search my name, Dr. Faye Baghetti or the brain doctor, which is what I like to call myself sometimes. Uh, and the phone fix is out on the 1st of February. <laughs> That's exactly right. Thursday, the 1st of February, you can make the most of your newfound first of the month motivation to try <laughs> to change your life for the better. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time, Faye. This has been great. Thank you for having me, Hannah. And thank you for such an amazing and insightful conversation. Standard issue for all women.